In Drink the Wild Air, we're going to be talking to people who, in different ways, explore the limits of what might be possible. Scientists, explorers, artists and thinkers who ask questions that reframe our reality. People, in short, who are different from most of us. Never happier than when, as Lewis Carroll might have put it, dreaming up six impossible things before breakfast. Yet while they are exceptional, they also remind us of the adventure inside all of us, of the thrill of those moments when we look at the world around us and realise it is infinitely remarkable. Yeah, and these surging glaciers are incredible, absolutely hypnotising. The first one I saw was just a monster. I'm Rachel Halliburton and today I'm talking to Heidi Sylvestre, a French glaciologist who has quite literally risked her life to chronicle the climate crisis. Her courage and dedication to her work meant that last year she was picked as the first ever winner of the Shackleton Medal for the Protection of the Polar Regions. Heidi does most of her work in Svalbard, where she lives in the world's northernmost settlement, Longyearbyen, a place so affected by climate change that right now it's forbidden for people to be buried there because the receding permafrost is pushing coffins to the surface. Yet her passion both for Svalbard and the work she does is unmistakable and she has made it her mission to communicate what she's discovering to everyone from world leaders to people watching TikTok. Heidi, thank you so much for coming to talk to us. Um, I want to start by saying to you, you have described being a glaciologist as being like an astronaut in a frozen world. Can you talk to us a bit about what's so different about what you do? I feel so lucky to have become a glaciologist. Um, It's not a normal job, that's for sure. A lot of people have never heard of this profession and and really wonders what goes behind being a glaciologist. What I love so much about it, I think, is the chance to travel to these really remote environments that are so powerful mesmerizing in their beauty, but also environments that, you know, will dictate our future, environments that react very quickly to climate changes. And to me, having the chance to be there, to be at the right place at the right time on the front line of climate change is is something quite incredible. Just feeling that you're a part of these incredible environments. Um, It's a very humbling experience. But at the same time, we have to collect the best possible data. And this is what it takes today. You not only need to understand how quickly these environments are changing, you need to to survive during your expedition, but but also make sure that you bring back something to society. Before we talk about working with ICE, um, as you said, working really on the front line of climate change, I want to ask you about the qualities you have that made you seek out this work. Um, The environments where you work are as dangerous as they are beautiful. Uh, Were you the kind of person who always looked for challenges? It wasn't always the case. Oh, not at all. You know, when I was a child, I was was very shy. I'm still pretty introverted, I think. Um, But I think I quickly understood that it was incredibly rewarding to try to rise to a challenge or to try to step out of my comfort zone, that those were times during which I was, I was growing a lot. And this becomes quite addictive when you understand that this is when and where you learn so much, where you can 
get some more skills, you know, meet incredible people. Um, and so to me, this is really one thing that I try to share with the younger generations and tell them that, you know, you don't, you don't, you're not born as a glaciologist. You, know? <laughs> you, you really have to, to grow into it and, and, and not being afraid of challenges, I think is very important. So this is something um, that, you know, we, we keep coming back to. It's, it's not an obvious thing to be a glaciologist. In, in a strange way, we, um, you know, a lot of children want to be an astronaut. <laughs> it's, it's the cliched right. you know, sort of wish. Uh, but uh, very few children you'll find uh, saying they want to be glaciologists. Can you talk to me, um, was it about, you know, was there any one particular person who actually inspired you, actually put, sent you on that path? I think it's a series of... of people who I've met who were not specifically glaciologists, but who told me or inspired me to become one. Um, it's, for example, mountain guides, um, you know, climbers, hikers, uh, people who were just as passionate about nature as I was, but who knew that you know, there was this possibility, that there was a profession that would enable me to spend a lot of time outside and, and especially spend time high up in the mountains and study these crazy environments. Um, and later on, you know, I got the chance to eventually meet glaciologists. And I must say, when I was 20, um, I didn't know any female glaciologists, you know, who had gone as far as becoming, you know, professors. Or So it was kind of difficult for me to find the right examples, you know, people who I would look up to. But eventually I met some of them uh, when I was already a glaciologist who showed me that, you know, you can really take this far. You can become a professor. You can really have a, an amazing understanding of the world of glaciology. And what does your family think about what you do and how, how have they encouraged you? Um, yeah, I'm not sure my family still totally understands um, what I do. Uh, <laughs> you know, I try my very best to, to explain what I do and, and what these expeditions are all about. And, um, but um, I think they have a healthy understanding of, of my job in the sense that they, I think they get that I travel for a living, that I go to these remote places, collect data, and then try to publish reports. So, um, I try not to share with them the stressful times or dangerous times that we go through on expeditions. You know, because both of my parents um, are avid skiers and mountaineers, um, and, and especially my mom stopped uh, doing mountaineering and climbing because of a really bad accident that she, she wasn't involved in, but her best friend unfortunately died pretty much in front of her, falling through a crevasse uh, on a glacier in the French Alps. And so they, they know the dangers of these environments. That's extraordinary. But your mother, having seen that and then knowing that her daughter is going out there and, and doing that, I think a, a lot of parents would certainly be very admiring that she can give that to you. Um, yeah, totally. I'm, I'm, I'm very grateful and, and to know that, you know, she, she trusts me in these environments. And, and I think it's so crucial for me to have her by my side and to know that she's still okay with this. Um, um, but she, she's been, you know, such a pillar uh, to me, um, you know, someone I could, I could sh share these experiences with. 
Um, but also sometimes someone who is able to warn me about these environments and keep, keep me in check, you know, make sure I wouldn't do anything crazy. What is her own profession? What, what did she do? So my mum was a scientist, actually. She was a, a biologist and then she became a librarian. And so throughout my childhood, she was the one bringing me, you know, books from, from polar explorers. So I think I got kind of, I mean, brainwashed is probably a strong word, but <laughs> I grew up in an environment where, you know, we would talk about those expeditions, those adventures. And all I wanted to do was to do the same thing. Uh, being a glaciologist, um, I think in a lot of ways it, it takes you to the edges of human experience. Um, in Svalbard, you specialise in the study of surging glaciers. Um, before you explain exactly what a surging glacier is, can you just take us back to the moment when you first saw one and describe exactly what it looked like and what it sounded like? Yeah, and these surging glaciers are incredible absolutely hypnotizing and the first one I saw was just a monster I think this is the best way to describe it we could see that there was something highly unusual going on from quite far away and as we were approaching by boat so this was a glacier terminating in the ocean we could see that the landscape around it had completely changed and I had been to that place a few, a few years prior, um, our second visit, and I couldn't recognize any of it. The glacier had advanced extremely rapidly over a cliff down towards the beach. The beach didn't exist anymore. And, and it really felt like approaching a very angry beast. So you can hear the glacier cracking there's a lot of calving taking place, so these icebergs that are you know, breaking off from the glacier, falling dramatically into the ocean. Um, and, and the glacier itself looks so dramatic because it's, it's completely torn apart. It's just a, a maze of crevasses, of fractures. And also it looks incredibly dirty because as the glacier moves very quickly towards the ocean during the surge. It is literally bulldozing everything on its way. So no matter what is standing in front of it, it gets totally smashed, totally destroyed. So, so it is kind of the angriest glacier you can ever see. And you feel so tiny. You feel honestly pretty scared when you're approaching such an angry beast. Um, but we, we had some work to do around the glacier when we were there. Um, so, for example, installing time-lapse cameras, doing some drone surveys. And, and believe me, you really want to keep a healthy distance. Um, can you explain to us um, exactly what a surging glacier is and why understanding them is so important to the future of our planet? Yeah, surging glaciers are probably still today one of the biggest enigmas in glaciology. Um, there is still a lot we do not understand about their behavior. And what they do is, is so unusual. When we think of glaciers, we always refer to them and, you know, oh, they're so slow, they move at glacial pace, you know, nothing is happening. And for most of the glaciers in the world, this is true. You know, they're very, very slow moving. They move, you know, sometimes a few meters per year at most 
And surging glaciers have the ability to completely switch their behavior. So they can go from being almost static or very slow moving to suddenly accelerating extremely rapidly. And by extremely rapidly, what I mean is, you know, speeds up to 10, 20, sometimes 50 meters per day. So this is really go from zero to like a thousand very, very quickly. Um, and if you think of a piece of ice that is suddenly moving so quickly, well, the whole thing changes its, its aspects, its shape. Um, the glaciers will basically stretch dramatically um, down the valley towards the ocean for, for most of them. And the reason why they're so very important is because when you have a glacier that goes from pretty static or very slow moving to suddenly accelerating as quickly as it can towards the ocean, where they can completely change the way they contribute to sea level rise. It is truly game changer to have a glacier that suddenly starts to surge. Um, for example, um, there is one really big glacier surging in the Arctic at the moment on the archipelago of Svalbard. And this glacier alone is contributing um, as much to sea level rise as all the other glaciers of the archipelago, simply because it is surging. So it is basically fast-tracking the movement of ice into the ocean. And today we're not able to say when a glacier is going to surge, how long the surge is going to last, you know, is it going to be for a few months, for a few years. So therefore we're not including these surging glaciers in our projections of future sea level rise. And to be fair, only about 1% to 2% of all the glaciers in the world have shown to behave this way repeatedly. So it, it's quite small, right? It's a tiny, tiny portion of the, the entire population of glaciers around the world. But if one in Svalbard is able to dramatically, almost double the amount of sea level rise coming from the glaciers, then you understand that we need to know more about these surging glaciers. But it's very tricky because if you put like single instruments on these glaciers that are starting to surge, you instantly lose your instrument. It becomes completely smashed by the forces at play. Um, so we need to be a little bit smarter and, and be smart about the way we use satellite images, time-lapse cameras, you know, to collect remotely sensed information is probably the way to go. People have always been gripped by stories of polar exploration. Um, you are a scientist, but you are also an explorer. And uh, you are exploring a landscape that's changing faster because of global warming than anywhere else in the world. Um, you've just been to Greenland on a six-week expedition with the climbers Alex Honnold and Hazel Finlay. Um, there you were going to places that no human has ever been before. Uh, what were you looking for? What an incredible expedition that was. Uh, we indeed spent last summer in the eastern part of Greenland. Uh, we studied this region called Skorsbysund, which is the largest fjord system on Earth. Uh, the entire fjord, I think, is almost 400 kilometers long, so everything... Everything is huge, everything is massive in this part of the world. And we have very little data about East Greenland. Um, but we know that 
But we know that we desperately need the data from that place because it is directly connected to the Greenland ice sheet. And we know that, you know, if the Greenland ice sheet were to completely lose its ice, it would increase sea levels globally by six to seven meters. So we, we do need data from the ground there. And our main mission during this expedition was to perform some kind of a health check. Though these landscapes of ice and snow seem remote for so many people, for some it's their everyday existence. Um, you've travelled to Colombia to study glaciers there, but uh, before you did so, you needed to ask for the blessing of the indigenous people in the mountains. Can you talk to me about that experience? Oh, that was pretty magical. I, I got contacted by a project called Cumbres Blancas Colombia a few years ago, just at the time when I was considering starting a project on tropical glaciers. And this sounds like such a weird expression, uh, tropical glaciers, but today there are still about 3,000 3, glaciers left along the equator. And these are probably the most endangered glaciers in the world. They are melting extremely rapidly. For most of them, it's actually already too late to save them. So what was amazing is that when Cumbres Blancas Colombia contacted me, they said, you know, you should, you should come. You should come and see our glaciers, because we still have about 70 glaciers in these really high mountains. But for most of these mountain ranges, you know, we have indigenous people living there. So for them, it's a very concrete thing, climate change. You know, they are the ones witnessing all these changes. And I remember our very first night in Colombia was in a smoky tent for hours and hours and hours talking to the elders from an indigenous community. I learned so much by talking to these indigenous elders. I mean, they are the true experts of this region. And I think it is very important that us, the scientists, do not forget this. I was traveling to Colombia to learn, first and foremost, to share uh, what I knew about climate change and, and, and compare that to you know, their view of the world. And it was incredible to see that they were dressed in white you know, from top to bottom um, because they are so connected to the snow and ice of these mountains. You know, they, they understand that the water coming from the glaciers is the origin of life. They know the value of these environments. I want to go back uh, now to your astronaut observations. Um, so going back to the other end of the scale, I, I think there's, there's much more of a link between space exploration and glaciology than, than most people appreciate. Um, I find it mind-boggling, for instance, that so much of what's happening at the Antarctic and the Arctic is measured by satellites. Uh, you talked about this a little bit, but can you talk to us in a little more detail how, how your own work has been changed by developments in satellites? Oh, yeah, it's been a revolution for us. I mean, the very first satellites that have been used to study the polar regions are from the 70s. But now, let me tell you, we can have images of the polar regions every day. Some of these images have incredible uh, resolution. Uh, we can see things that are on the centimeter scale now. Um, and these satellites help us to not just take pictures of these environments, although pictures are incredibly helpful to measure, you know, the changes in the area of sea ice or the extent of sea ice or glaciers. We have satellites that measure the thickness of sea ice, for example, satellites that are able to measure 
very accurately temperatures in these environments. So for us, you know, we, we wouldn't be able to do it without the satellites. And what they bring to us is not only the frequency of the measurements, also the fact that they operate year-round, but that they cover almost you know, the entirety of the polar regions. And this is something that we cannot do. You know, I, wish, <laughs> I wish we could have armies of scientists studying every square meter of these regions, but we cannot do that. So satellites are, are crucial for us, but we still need people on the ground to, to validate the data. There are still more men working at the polls than women. Um, have you yourself faced any opposition at all working as a female glaciologist? You know, I think I've always been incredibly lucky to find myself with the right people in the right teams. And um, you have to understand that, you know, when you work in the Poland region, some people have described it as um, arranged marriage sometimes because you end up, you know, with a team of people you don't really know that well. You're going to be spending a lot of time with them, sometimes even sharing a tent with them um, in some of the most stressful environments on Earth. And... You know, as, as, a, as a woman, sometimes you feel that maybe it's going to be a lot harder for you. And this is the truth, actually. Things are a lot harder for us um, because we might not be physically as strong. And, and sadly, you know, this is sometimes the main criteria, the main way to, to rate someone when you do field work. But actually, we can bring a lot of other things. You know, the kind of emotional intelligence, the... the, the just a, a simply a different way of doing science. And, you know, I've seen that during my Climate Sentinels expedition that took place last year in the Arctic. But it was my first time, you know, doing an expedition with just female scientists. And, and everything went so well. I mean, we didn't argue once. Uh, there were no egos. I think we were able to make um, the right decisions during a trip that was fairly challenging. But when I see that in the last IPCC report that only a quarter of the authors were female scientists, I think we can do a lot better than this. And in terms of physical dangers that you yourself have faced, I mean, you have uh, been in extraordinary conditions and, and been able to overcome uh, these, these situations. Just looking back at that um, expedition that you're on with Climate Sentinels, um, can you talk to us about a moment that you and I have talked about before when you, were, you saw a storm approaching and you, you, know, you, knew, you knew there was only one way to survive it. This expedition completely changed our views on Arctic climate change. We knew that the Arctic is the fastest warming place on Earth, especially this archipelago of Svalbard, uh, which is halfway between northern Norway and the North Pole. And this is a place that I know like the back of my hand. I mean, I've been traveling to Svalbard since 2008, you know, repeatedly several times a year, every year. And we decided to, to spend a month in Svalbard during the month of April uh, for a very good reason, is that the weather tends to be very good, very stable, very cold. But this is what we wanted for the expedition we wanted to conduct. And... What we went through on this expedition was just a series of incredible storms. The storms, I mean, I've never seen storms like these in the middle of April in Svalbard. And we were on skis for the whole month, uh, camping. So we were very vulnerable, very exposed to changing conditions. And luckily, we had an amazing team 
back in town in Longubien, sending us weather information every morning, every evening, just to make sure we would be able to make the right decisions. And that one morning, we knew we only had a few hours before the next storm would come. But this would be the most powerful storm we had ever experienced on the trip. I mean, in Svalbard, we're already pretty stressed when the wind is blowing at 14, 15 meters per second. Uh, the forecast was 36 meters per second. So it was a completely different ball game. And we were in a place that was so incredibly exposed, really high up in the mountains, and we decided to get moving ASAP to find shelter. But I mean, <laughs> there is no real shelter in those places. We decided to find a mountain that had the right aspect, the right orientation. And then when we reached the base of that mountain, we realized that actually, I mean, we couldn't even pitch a tent. It, it would not be possible to stay there. Um, and so as a joke, I told my team, oh, you know, what's left to do is just to bury ourselves in the snow. And, and actually, my friend Celia, an amazing scientist and, and Arctic uh, guide, took this very seriously. And she said, you know, actually, we don't have any other options. This is exactly what we're going to be doing. So we spent, you know, the remaining hours we had before the storm to, to dig as hard as we could. And we dug these um, two parallel tunnels uh, that were just deep enough when the storm started to, to come that, you know, we, we would be fine. And it honestly was pretty scary because we were, imagine, at the base of this mountain in these two tunnels. And, and I was really afraid that there would be avalanches you know, just coming crashing down, burying the entrance to these two tunnels. So even though once you were in the tunnel, you couldn't really hear the storm blowing outside, but I would just wake up, you know, every couple of hours thinking, oh, are we, can I, st can I still breathe? Like, are we totally buried under an avalanche or not? And at the time, we also had uh, two dogs with us, two uh, polar dogs uh, that we kept with us for polar bear protection, so they would warn us if there were any polar bears in the area. We couldn't have these dogs in the tunnels, they wouldn't come in. And, and these dogs are so used to terrifying conditions in the Arctic, so I just remember trying so hard, like in the blowing storm, to build a little wall for these dogs, and the dogs would keep jumping on the other side of this wall, because what they wanted is simply to be buried by the snow, as it provides a lot of insulation for them, for their fur. But they were attached to a chain that wasn't very long. And, and eventually, you know, when the snow is, is falling so hard with all that blowing wind, um, the dogs could have been totally stuck in there, totally, actually, completely buried under the snowpack. So this was another thing that kept waking me up, uh, is are the dogs still alive? Eventually, we, we started to understand that if we were staying there for too long, we were going to run out of food. So we, we had to get away from that place ASAP. So we spent two nights in the tunnels and eventually we were like, okay, let's make a decision that we're moving today. But the day we left this very nice shelter was insane. And, and the wind was still blowing super, super hard. But we, once you start moving, I mean, you cannot stop. You literally cannot stop. And I just remember watching my team and thinking, if something goes wrong today, like if a ski binding breaks, if someone hurts their knee, we are dead. I mean, we're going to be in such a dire situation. We barely spoke to one another that day, but we had to keep skiing. And I think we skied over 
maybe 25 kilometers that day in a horrifying conditions, but we made it. You've already given us a lot of great examples, but if you wanted to describe to somebody not in your world what's most extraordinary about your job, what would you say? <laughs> wow, I mean, it's hard to pick one thing. But to me today, I think the most extraordinary thing is the fact that, you know, we, we have the knowledge about those places. We, we feel it deep in our souls, what, what is currently happening to the polar regions. But what an amazing responsibility to be able to share this with the world. And to me, I think this is the most important thing today to make sure that as a scientist, that the science is accessible, that the science is understood, and that the science is being used to pull people into action. And, you know, I could have answered, oh, you know, the beauty of these environments, their remoteness. But I think today what we do is all about impact. What is the impact that I want to have on our societies? And as scientists, we have, you know, the power of knowledge, but also a big responsibility to make sure that people understand what is happening in the polar regions and how the changes in the polar regions are affecting the rest of the world. You have actually just written a book, haven't you? You have a, a, a children's book yeah. that's going out to teach, to teach new generations about glaciology. Yeah, and I think, you know, there are so many tools that we can use uh, to make sure that people are curious about the polar regions, that they are just as mesmerized by the polar regions as we are. And indeed, so I've, I've just been uh, involved in this uh, children's book uh, that came out um, and that basically um, follows the story of my life. You know, how did I become a glaciologist? All these places I've had the chance to travel to. And I'm so giddy about this. I'm so excited about this book because I think it's another way uh, to inspire the younger generations and, and to make sure that they understand that, that we do not expect them to solve the climate crisis you know, it shouldn't be their duty, it shouldn't be their life mission. But we will need their voices in the future. You know, they will, we will need their support. We'll need to make sure that they hold us accountable. Just going on from that, I want to ask you um, about three, for three cultural suggestions. What book has most inspired you? Uh, a film that's inspired you? Um, and also a piece of music? Um, that you associate with your work? Oh, I love this question. Can we start with the book? <laughs> with the book, well, this is a book that I'm reading at the moment, and I'm sorry, I do not remember the full name of the author, but the book is called On Time and Water. And this is a book that I bought just as I was, uh, when I was leaving Greenland. Um, it's written by an Icelandic author that is so great at making sure we understand things that are so difficult to grasp, such as, you know, the timescales of climate changes, uh, such as the magnitude of these changes. And he's able, through his book, to bring it back to, you know, generations, human lives, the experiences we go through throughout our lives. And, and I think this is such a human way to talk about climate change. So I'm, I'm trying to learn um, and making sure that you know, I get some tips from this book because it, it brings it back to what makes us humans. And, and I think this is so important. 
So then the movie and okay, there are so many, uh, but I think to be honest, don't look up uh, the movie that came out on Netflix portrayed the way we struggle to talk about the climate crisis in, 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 in such a perfect way. And the frustration that we feel, the way governments react or do not react fast enough uh, in the face of the climate crisis. So this was, this was a really good one. Another two that I would recommend would be perhaps Merchants of Doubt that came out quite a few years ago, but it's a way, uh, it explains how we can manipulate public opinion about the climate crisis and how big lobbies have tried to fight against um, scientific facts and to, make, to create some confusion in people's minds and make sure that people wouldn't fight climate change in a way. And another one is uh, Before the Flood uh, that was produced by Leonardo DiCaprio and it stars in it, uh, but also a great way to highlight the work of scientists and how scientists should address governments. And last but not least, a piece of music. Well, this is one. <laughs> this is one. It's a little bit of a sad piece of music, but it's uh, by Ludovico Enodi, and it's called "Elegy for the Arctic." And every time I listen to to it, I feel just you know, I feel that I'm right there, that I'm looking at glaciers calving, icebergs crumbling away, and um, and I think he was able to really capture the intensity of the changes taking place in the polar regions. So a bit of a sad piece of music, but it really helps you to kind of reflect on these changes. And what's your next project? <laughs> what's the next project? Well, my, my biggest priority right now is to study the tropical glaciers of Papua, but also the tropical glaciers of East Africa. I mean, the, the glaciers in Papua will be gone in two to three years. It's, it's really a dramatic race against time. Uh, we're in touch with the amazing scientists of Jakarta um, that are collecting really great data there. But I want to make sure that, sadly, that when the glaciers will be gone, that we do not forget that they were there, that they were so very important. And so through my project, The Last Tropical Glaciers, we're aiming to create these digital archives of these landscapes and just more than archives to, to make sure that the scientific knowledge is saved and that we will not forget how important these glaciers were. So hopefully next year, if we manage, uh, we'll do another expedition either to Papua or to East Africa to the glaciers of the Renzori Mountains in Uganda, which are and it's so poetic, the most permanent and highest source of the Nile River. Heidi Sylvester, thank you very much. <laughs>